You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Back in March, I interviewed Robert for the first time. It lasted over four hours, and it was a great exchange. I hope you've listened to it. We covered so much ground from COVID vaccines and censorship to JFK and even Marilyn Monroe. We broke it up into two different shows. We had so much material. Episodes 283 and 282, if you want to check them out. Since that first interview, a lot has changed when it comes to the vaccines, schools, masking. And that is largely because of voices like his, which many have done their level best to suppress from the beginning smearing him as a disinformation merchant. And the truth is, he's nothing of the kind. And while many Americans may want to just move on from COVID like a bad nightmare, Bobby says not so fast. He believes there needs to be a real reckoning for those who were and are still in charge, many of whom are still trying to push some of these same policies on us. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is out with a new documentary called The Real Anthony Fauci. It is based off of his New York Times bestseller of the same name, which they also tried to suppress, but the people found it and loved it anyway. And he's also written a new book recently called Letter to Liberals. We'll discuss both. But like last time, the interview was wide ranging. We talked about the midterm elections. We talked about whether he regrets any of the very harsh criticism uh, in the past that he leveled against President Trump and that was leveled against him by his own family. And incredibly, he reveals for the first time his reaction to finding out his son had just gotten back from Ukraine, where without telling anybody, he joined the war against Russia. It is a war Robert very much opposes, but you're going to hear him talk about how it made him feel as a father and as a Kennedy. Without further ado, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. I uh, loved, loved, loved our last interview, and so did the audience. 
Uh, so I'm thrilled to have you back. Thank you for doing it, Megan. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So let's talk about Letter to Liberals. Why this book and why now? Well, you know, I, I'm one of the things that has I, this book came out of an argument I had or a, a debate that I had with a former colleague of mine, John Morgan, who is uh, a former law partner who is very, very much um, part of the. He he very much ascribed to the pandemic orthodoxy, to the government orthodoxies. Uh, he loves Anthony Fauci, and he believes what he was told about masks, about lockdowns, about the vaccine safety, about the vaccine efficacy, and about social distancing and closure of schools. And we had a discussion about it during the pandemic. It was based, it was really an email and text discussion where uh, we would send our each other's or, uh, uh, studies back, scientific studies, with some commentary on them. And to me, it struck me that that's what we should be doing as a nation, as a people, that we ought to be able to have a congenial debate about um, about government policies, and that has been absent. People who disagree with the orthodoxy or who question it are not treated respectfully. They have been vilified, marginalized, and uh, and doxxed and deplatformed, and uh, and treated as kind of dangerous heretics, and and um. And in other cases, like second-class citizenship, citizens, like in some cases, children who have not taken the vaccine for religious reasons or medical reasons have been denied medical treatment in hospitals. Um, politicians and celebrities have argued that they should be people who decline to be vaccinated, should be jailed or should be punished or should be denied constitutional rights, including our president, Joe Biden. And this has always struck me that this is contrary to the liberal tradition. Um, liberals traditionally love disputation. They love contention. They embrace debate. They understood that the free flow of information is the sunlight, the fertilizer of democracy that, you know, the, the the entire core of liberalism is this belief that came to us from Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton and Adams, people who clashed with each other on so many other issues. But the one thing they really felt, felt strongly about was free speech, and they felt that a democratic society could not function where there were impediments to the free flow of information because the free flow of information annealed in the furnace of debate would yield the uh, the most beneficial public policies. That, that debate, that um, the conversation, the open conversation and the exchange of information would really feed the best government policies. So um, they said, all of them, said we put the the freedom of expression the guarantee of freedom of expression in the first amendment because all of the other rights that we're creating for people in the 10 amendments at that time are um are dependent on it on it that if a government has license to silence its critics 
it has license to commit any kind of atrocity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we saw that the, uh, our, our Bill of Rights really plowed under during this pandemic. We saw these unprecedented constraints, government-dictated constraints on freedom of speech, where for the first time, Americans were not allowed to criticize their government or government policies. And predictably, all of the other amendments to our Constitution and the Bill of Rights collapse. We, the, the First Amendment also guarantees freedom of religion, but we closed every church in this country for a year without any kind of public hearing or scientific citation. It was just a, a an individual who's been in government for 50 years and never won an election who said, lock them all down. And he has since said in April of this year, Dr. Fauci acknowledged in a television interview that lockdowns don't work and that the only purpose of lockdowns is to force people to get vaccinated. That's not what we were told at the time. Uh, And they went after freedom of petition and freedom of assembly by uh, by creating, you know, these social distancing mandates that were designed to keep people apart rather than create a feeling of community and keep people together. And then they went after, of course, property rights. The Fifth Amendment guarantees uh, uh, property rights and they closed 3.3 million businesses in this country without just compensation, without due process, which is a violation of the Constitution. They got rid of the Seventh Amendment guarantee for jury trials. The Seventh Amendment says, no, it's very simple, no American shall be denied the right of a trial before a jury of his peers in cases or controversies exceeding $25 in value. There's no pandemic exception. And the founders knew all about pandemics. There was two pandemic, two epidemics during the Revolutionary War. And there were smallpox epidemics every summer during the you know first 30 years of our country. But one of those epidemics, a smallpox epidemic, shut down the armies of New England for several months and really stopped us from taking Canada. Canada, without that smallpox epidemic, would have been part of the United States almost certainly today. And then there was a malaria epidemic that crippled the Army of Virginia. So they knew all about it, but they didn't put it in the Constitution. And then they went after the Fourth Amendment guarantees against or against or prohibitions against warrantless searches and seizures, all this kind of very intrusive track and trace surveillance and, mm-hmm. you know, having to disclose your medical records when you go into a public building, et cetera, and on and on. So all of the amendments, probably the, with the exception of the Second Amendment, were eviscerated. And these are the, you know, this was the bedrock upon which liberal orthodoxy, the liberal party, JFK, FDR liberalism has stood. And then finally, uh, not finally, but, um, you know, significantly, all of the lockdowns and these countermeasures were a war on the poor. The people who really suffered during the pandemic in really, you know, blacks lost 3.25 percent, or three, three and a half, three and a quarter um, life years. So life expectancy for blacks dropped dramatically, and for whites, and for blacks more than anybody, 
on the uh, children were, were sub were you know I had a terrible time. We now have you know the Brown University study shows that children lost twenty two IQ points during the pandemic. Um, these are all things that you know we have built uh, the liberal doctrine on helping the poor, on helping minorities, and protecting civil rights, and above all, free speech. And all of those things were abandoned during the pandemic. So I wanted just to, to kind of write a very, very gentle book that reminded liberals and my party, the Democratic Party, of the things that we're supposed to stand for. Well, I know one of the reasons uh, that you wrote it as well is this now infamous quote by Anthony Fauci, which was just it was exceptional in its narcissism and its hubris and kind of explains why we abandoned that much of the Constitution, as you just outlined. Who could forget this? This is soundbite five. The attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. So if you are trying to, you know, get at me as a public health official and a scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. And anybody that looks at what's going on clearly sees that. You have to be asleep not to see that. And I know you've written, Bobby, that that it that was basically a demand for blind faith in authority, which is antithetical to who we are. Yeah, I mean, blind faith in authority is a feature of religion. It's a feature of authoritarian regimes, but it is not a feature of either science or democracy. Science is dynamic. Science is always changing. You, you know, science is a series of hypotheses that are constantly evolving as we find, as we learn new evidence. And we're supposed to constantly in real sciences that search for empirical truths at its best. And we ought to be always ready to look at new evidence that, you know, our old hypotheses were, uh, were erroneous or were wrong or that they have to be adjusted. And none of that happened. None of it was permitted. Nobody, scientists who spoke out or silence, you know, I give them the story, I tell the story of Galileo, and Galileo, of course, who uh, was the first person to really write authoritatively about heliocentrism, the, the idea that the earth revolved around the sun, and that the earth was not the center of the universe. And this challenged the, the Christian cosmology at the time, which placed Earth at the center of the universe with all the orbs and planets rotating around it. And um, and Galileo had invented a telescope and he was able to show people that this just was not true. And one of the things he complained about after his century, he was threatened either to to you know to withdraw his um his thesis or to be burned at the stakes. And um and he chose to to recant. But he quietly was heard whispering to himself as he as he walked down the steps of the courthouse, and yet it moves. In other words, and, hmm. and yet the earth moves. But one of the things he complained about up until his old age was that it wasn't just the clerics who had condemned him. The, the real bitterness and shock that he felt is that his fellow scientists refused to a man 
to even look through his telescope. And I think a lot of us who were struggling with to actually reading the science during the pandemic and seeing the studies, reading the clinical trial data from Pfizer and from Moderna as it was released and reading the, you know, the VAERS reports, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, the surveillance reports, and seeing that the vaccines were not effective and that they were not safe and that many of the things that were being said about them officially simply were not true. We were not allowed to talk. We were silenced. The scientists were silenced. The doctors who saw these, you know, the, this cascade of injuries in their patients were silenced. The patients who reported their own injuries or the death of family members were silenced. Yeah, they were removed from the really... clinical trials and not even mentioned. Let me do a case in point on that in your particular circumstance, because it, it shows exactly what you were up against and what others like you who are raising red flags were up against. Uh, early on in the pandemic, you challenged uh, Dr. Fauci's assertion. I'll read it as follows. When you get vaccinated, you not only protect your own health and that of the family, but also you contribute to the community health by preventing the spread of the virus virus through the community. In other words, you become a dead end to the virus. Joe Biden, July 2021. You are not going to get covid if you have these vaccinations. You said, I don't believe that. I've got questions about that. I don't think it's true. The vaccine industry's monkey studies. In May of 2020, you suggested made these claims doubtful that vaccinated monkeys both caught and transmitted COVID with the same frequency as unvaccinated primates. You were deplatformed off of Instagram for that. And now, of course, we know, of course, we know that after the original variant, those vaccines didn't prevent any transmission at all. But there was a question about the original or the original vaccine. Did that prevent transmission? Well. This Pfizer executive went and testified for the European Parliament and was asked about that just two weeks ago. It made some national headlines, mostly in right wing media, um, the Pfizer executive's admission. And here's how that went. It's soundbite two. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it's entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. I haven't gone back and checked all of Pfizer's statements, but Anthony Fauci claimed that it prevented transmission. The president of the United States told us that it prevented transmission. And there you have Pfizer on camera admitting they had no idea, none whatsoever, whether it prevented transmission or it didn't. You lost your platform because you said, here are studies suggesting it does not prevent the transmission. That's just one case in point. We could go through dozens of others. But do you feel vindicated? Um, well, you know what? During that at that time, I had a friend who was uh, um, who was working. My one of my sons works in an investment firm, and he had a boss who was um, who was interested in making uh, bets on some of the vaccine companies. And he called me up 
and asked me what I thought about the vaccines. And I said, and that monkey study had just come out. And the monkey study showed that the fact that the that the monkeys, the macaques that they had given the vaccine to when they then exposed them to COVID, that the vaccinated monkeys had the same concentrations of, of COVID virus in their nasal pharynx as the unvaccinated monkeys. And that's pretty clear. It doesn't prevent transmission. That's where the transmission comes from. So I said to this guy, and this is how naive I was still, even after 18 years of doing this work, um, and understanding the power of this industry. And I said at that time, there's no way that these uh, products can be brought to market because the science is very clear. They don't prevent transmission. They cannot stop the disease. And then there's a lot of danger about giving a leaky vaccine, one that does not provide sterilizing immunity during the, the, the middle of a pandemic. Because now what you're doing is you're turning everybody who gets the vaccine and then gets COVID into a variant factory, you know, the same way that if you gave subtherapeutic antibiotics to people and allowed the disease to figure out how to get around the defenses of the antibiotics, now you're breeding variants that are super variants that understand how to escape the vaccine. And, so, and this was many people were writing about this. So I'm a scientist, but nobody was reading them. But they, and I was saying, I said to this guy, you should not bet on the Pfizer vaccine because there's no way that this is, that they're ever going to, no matter how crazy they are, they're not going to put this on the market. But I was wrong. And, but I did write about it. And of course, and Megan, you know this because you read some of my stuff. I don't go out there and say the vaccine won't work, you know, and you shouldn't take it. I don't give that advice. I tell people, here's what the science says, and this suggests. Unless they got something else to show us, this suggests that they know it's not going to work to prevent transmission. It may have some other benefit. And by the way, we're still waiting to see what that other benefit was or is because the data doesn't really support uh, any benefit from this vaccine. Um, but you know, there may be maybe a, a few thousand people have have gotten some benefit from it, but uh, there's a lot of people have been injured by it. That's the that's the thing is the vaccine injury and in particular now myocarditis risk and risk of death in young men age 16 to 24. Um, you point out in, in your book that these Scandinavian Scandinavian countries have banned the Moderna vaccine for um, I think it's, is it all people or is it just men under the age of 30? Yeah, they and there's no a very good reason recommended for, for people under 30. Okay. And, and so, and when we talk about the risk of myocarditis here, what you hear from the American authorities all the time is your risk of getting myocarditis is much greater from contracting COVID than it is as a result of the vaccine. So get the vaccine because if you get COVID, you're much more likely to get myocarditis. But is that true? No, that's not true. The, the, there, there are studies out there that have looked specifically at that issue. And the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine is enormous. And the risk of myocarditis from COVID is rather low. I mean, the, the probable risk of symptomatic myocarditis 
is probably around one in 2,200 to one in 2,700 uh, children and from the vaccine. And then there's asymptomatic myocarditis that may be much, much higher. The day, you know, myocarditis is a very, very serious disease. Historically, about we don't know what's going to happen with these vaccine-induced myocarditis cases, but historically, about fifty um, percent of people who are diagnosed with myocarditis die within five years or require a heart transplant. So there's no real indication that's severe. That that's severe myocarditis will ever go away or ever get better. The people who are injured by it are probably permanently injured, and it is only one of many, many serious side effects. Boys tend to get it more than girls. The girls are much more susceptible to neurological injuries, including really serious and devastating neurological injuries. And Maddie DeGarry, who's one of the people who volunteered for this study, one of 1,100 girls who got the vaccine in the study is now in a wheelchair, apparently for life, and she is eating from a feeding tube. And uh, and you know, one of the really disturbing things is that Pfizer uh, reported her injury as a stomach ache. So what we know is that we can't really trust even the really devastating clinical trial data. If anybody who reads the clinical trial data I don't think they would take the vaccine. More people died in the vaccine group than the placebo group. 23% more people died in the vaccine group. But why would you take a vaccine that within six months, you have a 23% uh, higher likelihood of dying? Well, you know and, that you, you don't, we don't know if it was the vaccine that caused the death. Oh, of course not, except Pfizer sold us the vaccine based upon that clinical trial data. So wait, and then can I just jump in and then Bobby, can you speak to this then refused and continues to refuse to release the underlying data? Like the reason you can't answer that question and I can't answer that question is because Pfizer Moderna won't release the information about what the comorbidities were, what the ages were, what give us the facts around the people who died. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and we're Aaron Siri, my colleague, is suing them right now. And Pfizer has taken the position and very disturbed, troubling, troubling that FDA has intervened on behalf of Pfizer to say that we don't want to give anybody this data for 75 years. And these are, you know, this is a government agency and a vaccine company that says, yeah, we're going to rush the vaccine. So we're going to be super transparent. We're going to have, like, you know, have all these safeguards. And then they threw all the safeguards out. They said, we're going to do a five year study. And, you know, I'm sure, Megan, you've seen that tape from Anthony Fauci from 2002, where he's talking about vaccines. And he says, you can't do a vaccine in under 12 years. You cannot approve it because. You could have really good results for the first year and you could re have really good results for the second year. But 12 years later, you have mayhem where all of these long term injuries with long incubation periods, with long diagnostic horizons suddenly appear. What they said is we're going to do five year study and we're going to we're going to give an emergency use authorization after a year. 
Oh, we're going to continue to see what happens to the placebo group and compare them to the vaccine group for five years. What do they do after two months? They unblinded the study and they gave the vaccine to the placebo group. Yeah, they tried but to, un- they, they had to get rid of the placebo of, group. And that doesn't make any sense. But that point you made before, because I don't want people to think I was I was um, making a leap that is impermissible. What I what I was saying is that we're inappropriate. Pfizer got its license based upon the six month data set, and if you look at that six month data set, the all cause mortality in that, which means they look at there's twenty two thousand people in the vaccine group, twenty two thousand people roughly in the placebo group. And they look at that for six months and they say, how many people died of COVID? Well, here's what it said. In the vaccine group, one person died of COVID. In the placebo group, two people died of COVID. So they can then say, well, the vaccine is 100% effective because two is 100% of one. And most people, Americans, and they know this, that most Americans, when they hear the vaccine is 100% effective, what they think is, I get the vaccine, I'm 100% not going to get COVID. That's not what it is. What it really means is you have to give 22,000 vaccines to prevent one COVID death. And if you're going to give 22,000 vaccines, you better make sure that the vaccine isn't killing one person in those 22,000, because if it is, you've canceled out the entire benefit. So they do that study. And it's called called the all-cause mortality data set. And that is, I think it's, um, it's illustration number five in there, you know, and anybody can go look this up. And you have to kind of do the reading afterwards because there's some stuff they left out. But what they what they come up with is that there are this is the punchline that 21 people died. Uh, the 22,000 the vaccine group, 21 died over six months. In the placebo group, only 18 died. And what that means is that by their own I'm not saying it's true because nothing about this study is true. Nothing is true. Harvey Risch, who's this, you know, one of the world's greatest statisticians, has said you can't do a study with 22,000 people in it. You need 440,000 to be able to tell anything about the vaccine because the um, because the COVID rates are so low. So you really won't be able to tell anything unless you have a, a study. 10 to 20 times that size. So nothing about this. You can't really say anything about the vaccine from this study, but they did anyway. Mm-hmm. They got a permit based upon this lousy little study. They got a permit to give this to 320 million Americans. Wow. And But if you look at their own data that they submitted to, to FDA, their data says that if you get the vaccine, you're 23% more likely to die over the six months, over the next six months, than if you don't. And what was killing them? Cardiac arrest. Oh, there was five, four, there was five cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and only one in the placebo group. And what that would mean, again, with all the provisos and caveats that I put on before, 
is that if you get the vaccine, you're five times more likely to die from a cardiac arrest over the next six months than if you don't. And what it also means for every life they save from COVID, four people are dying from cardiac arrest. And I just again, want to point this out. I just want to point this out. So um, Jamar Cardiology, uh, they they published a study. It was uh, April of 2022. And they concluded that both the first and second doses of the mRNA vaccines were associated with an increased risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, heart conditions. For individuals receiving two doses of the same vaccine, the risk of myocarditis was highest among young men aged 16 to 24 after the second dose. And they went on to say studies of long the long-term prognosis of vaccine-associated cases of myocarditis are lacking and are urgently needed. They were saying they don't know what's going to happen to these young men who got myocarditis. You point out potentially as high as a 50 percent death rate. That's, as I understand it, for severe myocarditis, not for the more mild kind. But some of these kids don't even know. Some of these kids get myocarditis. They may not even know that they have it unless they get a cardiac screening. Yeah, I mean, that's frightening for parents like myself. Look, I have seven kids and um a, a bunch of them got the vaccine and they they had to take three doses to go to school. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, they had to make a choice. Am I not going to go to law school or am I going to get this vaccine? And that, and, you know, and they don't want to, um, they don't want to be dishonest with anybody. They don't want to get a fake vaccine card or anything like that. So they had to go get those vaccines. And, um, and I'm worried about that. I'm worried about what, you know, they play sports. I have a son who's uh, on the rugby team at his college. And I'm worried because it's athletes who are dying. And it's that kind of high intensity aerobic sports where we're seeing these, you know, 1100 athletes that we've recorded now that have collapsed on the field. And, you know, most, if not many, if not most of those have died. And we're seeing it again and again. So parents like myself who have vaccinated children have a right to worry about this. Now, I will say this. We looked at that at uh, for a show we did not long ago, and, and they were saying that young people, though we don't often call attention to it, forgive the term, drop dead of heart attacks on sports fields all the time and have even before COVID and the vaccines. You know, so what we need is a study that compares the rate of death amongst these young people now post-vaccination to what was happening before when um, yeah, I'm sure there that there are you know documents showing uh, what it is. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. One of the things that jumped out at me in your book is you, you cited ICanDecide.org. Um, it's a group uh, that has banded together with some attorneys to try to get information from the federal government on the vaccines. And in March of 22, they submitted two FOIA requests to the CDC for documentation. How many confirmed COVID 
19 deaths have there been in children, 11 or younger, and in children between the 12 to 15 year old age groups? How many confirmed deaths have there been to the CDC? And on March 10th, 2022, you point out the CDC responded, we have not conducted the analysis requested for this age group, and therefore we cannot provide you with a data product in response. But publicly, the CDC is claiming that COVID ranks as one of the top 10 causes of death for children age 5 to 11 years. This is why some parents are so paranoid because they have the misfortune of believing Rochelle Walensky that it's a top 10 cause of death for the young ones. But as you point out in the book, when asked to submit the proof, they say we ha- we don't have that data set. We haven't done that research. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think people have this feeling that um, everybody got vaccinated and COVID now is not as dangerous as it used to be. So the vaccine must have done it. The vaccine must be saving lives. But I have not seen any data that shows that. And, you know, those kind of data are easy to get. But what we're seeing from, for example, from the insurance industry, from the CDC, as you point out, is uh, either deliberately or because of incompetence. They're not producing the kind of data that would allow us to do rational decision making as individuals or or as a nation. And that's been one of the most disturbing features of the government management of this uh, pandemic is the um, is the obfuscation about good information. Um, but there's a number of people now who have gone out to an Ed Dowd is one of them who's, you know, the, the BlackRock executive, former BlackRock executive who's gone out to the insurance industry. And the insurance industry is panicked about this because we're they're seeing a 40% rise in unexplained deaths and in excess deaths. And they're occurring in young people in 2022. So over 2021. The number of people who are dying um, since mass vaccination is much higher than the people who are dying from COVID. And, okay, but wait, but wait, we're this, seeing this, this is what doctors will say. There there's a number is, of other ways. We don't know if it's the vaccine it, or or deaths uh, of despair or you know drug overdoses, and you know it doesn't necessarily have to be from COVID if it's not the vaccine, but it could be from a whole host of other things that have been caused during the pandemic. A whole host of other things, and we ought to have that data. We ought to know that. Why is CDC? discouraging court coroners and, and morticians and public health authorities from doing autopsies on people whose deaths are suspect. You know, there, there's a deliberate obfuscation of data that we've seen from the beginning of the pandemic. But there's a lot of other kind of data sources that appear to indicate, Megan, that the vaccine is causing more deaths and injuries than it is averting. One of those data points is the nation by nation data, and this is in my book, um, that show that the nations that have the highest vaccination rates also have the highest death rates from COVID and non-COVID deaths. And um, and there are many, many others, and you can do, you know, uh, you can do state by state comparisons, and there's not there's a lot of clever people who are looking at this right now. And I have not seen any data that indicate, with one exception, which is a very weak study that is now being cited. Um, and uh, I'm not seeing any study or any really even common sense 
argument based on science or anything else or any form of empiricism that shows that the vaccine is actually saving lives. I think the vaccine appears to be doing what the uh, what the clinical trial indicated it would do, which is to increase mortality in the vaccine group over the um, over the placebo group. The one study that I'm talking about is a study that is now being widely cited by the New York Times and everybody else. With some glee, it appears um, that indicates that Republican states um, have a higher death rate from COVID than Democratic states. In other words, the red states are doing worse from COVID than the blue states. Um, but it, it's a it's a fairly kind of uh, sophomoric study that. It, you can't say anything about the vaccines, and it may be true that more Republicans and Republican states died from COVID, but there are a lot of other co-variables. You know, those states tend to be poorer states. There are also lots of studies that show um, that uh, those the, the the regions that are more dependent on fast food, they have higher, higher levels of diabetes, of, of uh, obesity, which are the primary co-variables that you know, predict COVID tests. It, I noticed in the study, I think this is true, that they also include Florida in that study. And so you're looking at a, um, a population that is disproportionately elderly, and we have no idea. There's no indication that this has anything to do with vaccination status. It's, uh, you know, that's very speculative, but that's literally the only study that I've seen cited for the proposition that the vaccine is actually saving lives. And I can't say whether it is or isn't. I suspect it is not. I suspect the vaccine is causing more deaths and it's uh, and it is averting. Uh, but I cannot give you the numbers, and it's not my fault that I can't. Give no, you it's numbers not your fault because your fault. we have looked at every kind of a permutation of data that the government will allow us to see, and you and it's very very hard to come up with exact numbers from looking at that. And that is, I have to say. It has to be deliberate. These are oh, the that, first thing. Complete, if you were a public at a minimum, official, it's a dereliction, and it could be deliberate. Wait, let me just stand by it and ask I, you. I think that's. I want to get back to your theory that it's I deliberate. Think that's a better way of putting it. Um, because the only thing that jumped out at me on this, because there is a question. I mean, I saw, I saw the charts in your book that showed a spike in deaths post mass vaccinations, and not exactly post covid outbreaks you know the 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 spikes came post mass vaccinations um yeah. but then i looked at sweden and they're heavily vaccinated but they didn't have the the spike in morbidity and i so that to me suggested that maybe it's more lockdown deaths you know deaths of despair here that we're seeing as opposed to necessarily tied to I have those charts, um, which are from Johns Hopkins data for every country in the world. And, and, and it's very, very consistent after mass vaccination, ir- um, irrespective of lockdown status, because the vaccinations came after a year of lockdown or six months of lockdown. The lockdowns were already in, in place in many places, like and I know of Australia and Austria and med, many others, virtually in every place. And yet you're still seeing these, um, you know, these huge spikes in, in COVID deaths 
immediately after vaccination. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing we're getting now. We're getting good data from certain countries that were early adopters of the vaccine, like Israel, like Singapore, mm -hmm. Japan, um, New York State, uh, which has a, a good database, and other places, the UK, et cetera. And what we're seeing is a um, evidence of a phenomena that was predicted at the outset called antibody-dependent enhancement. It's also called um, uh, paradoxical priming. And what it means is that the vaccine um, directs your immune system to one, to a single strain of a single clade of a single um, pathogen. And in doing so, it weakens the rest of your immune system and makes you susceptible after a certain amount of time to not only that infection, um, not only other strains, uh, but that infection as well and other diseases. And what we're seeing is now that the vaccine appears to have, here's what, what I, the way that I read the data, and this is a hypothesis, so people should not believe me. And I always say this, people need to read the science on their own, but I'm going to give you the hypothesis that I think is true. And, you know, that if I, if you can show me data that is not true, then I will correct it. So this is just a hypothesis, but, what it be, but a lot of people believe this, and there's a lot of data to support it, that the vaccine is ineffective for the first six weeks after the first shot. I'm assuming a, a two-shot, you know, a two-dose vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna. And that during that period, the COVID infection rate goes up and the death rate goes up. And the, the data, the official data, do not count you as vaccinated until two weeks after the second shot. So the deaths that happened during that first six weeks are attributed to unvaccinated people, to the unvaccinated group, which is not, which is, it's a, it's a trick. It's a statistical trick. Then the vaccine appears to provide immunity and good immunity during the first month or two months. And then a precipitous decline, a waning that happens very, very quickly and very precipitously so that by the seventh month, it has lapsed into negative efficacy. And what that means is that after seven months, if you had that vaccine, you are more likely to get COVID than somebody who has never been vaccinated. And this data is holding up across every country in the world that we have good data sets. And this is exactly the problem that so many scientists warned about at the beginning, including Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci, and you can dig up this tape, said at the beginning of the pandemic that um, you could have a vaccine that could actually make it more likely for you to get sick and for you to die. And that would be the worst possible outcome. So you can look at Anthony Fauci saying that Peter Hotez, who is another one of the high priests of the orthodoxy, said the same thing. He warned against pathogenic priming. Um, Paul Offit also made a very public statement that is available on YouTube, et cetera, mm -hmm. where he also warned about it. And the reason they warned about it is because every attempt that they have made in the past 
to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Let me jump in because we have this Anthony Fauci soundbite from your documentary. You wrote a book called The Real Anthony Fauci and an accompanying documentary. And here here he is uh, talking about the vaccines in the way you described. Watch. There's another element to safety. And that is if you vaccinate someone and they make an antibody response and then they get exposed and infected, does the response that you induce actually enhance the infection and make it worse? And the only way you'll know that is if you do an extended study, not in a normal volunteer who has no risk of infection, but in people who are out there in a risk situation. This would not be the first time, if it happened, that a vaccine that looked good in initial safety actually made people worse. There was the history of the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in children, which paradoxically made the children worse. One of the HIV vaccines that we tested several years ago actually made individuals more likely to get infected. If you take it and then a year goes by and everybody's fine, then you say, okay, that's good. Now let's give it to uh, 500 people. And then a year goes by and everything's fine. You say, well, then now let's give it to thousands of people. And then you find out that it takes 12 years for all hell to break loose. So put that in perspective for us, Bobby. I mean, what what he's saying is that these vaccines now, I mean, he was talking to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook there in that original soundbite, and he's saying that some of the risks of these vaccines might only become known later, and that if you get the vaccine and then you contract the virus, it could be that you're in more danger, which honestly, hasn't that happened to virtually everyone who's gotten the vaccine? You know, we, we all got the vaccine and then Omicron came and we all got COVID. So what does all of that mean for us? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to defend the vaccine is actually effective. Um, but I mean, just going back to this, this issue of antibody dependent enhancement that actually may make you worse. You know, I mean, there's a question out there now, Megan, if, if you got, the, you know, you know, all these people, including Fauci's had four vaccines and he still had COVID twice. And, right. you know, and where you see that again and again and again. and you know, the question is, if you got vaccinated, are you more likely to get COVID immediately? We don't know that because nobody is doing those, that, those data studies. So we have no way of telling. But here's the thing about antibody-dependent enhancement. Antibody-dependent enhancement is really dangerous. And when they, you know, when they experimented with these early vaccines, they, the, the people who got it, the children who got it, um, who who you know had this very good antibody response, and they're exposed to the wild virus and they die. And unvaccinated kids were not dying, so the vaccine actually makes things much worse. And they, with coronavirus, they've tried for thir- for what, what is it so for twenty years to try to develop a vaccine that would that would not have that effect, and they've never been able to do it. So then they rush these two vaccines to market. And the first one in the pipeline is Moderna. Wouldn't you think that if you were, and you know, Fauci's agency owns 50% of that vaccine, they get 50% of the royalties from it. He has, you know, he has people who work for him 
who will get $150,000 a year for life. People who worked on this vaccine in his agency, who he chooses, and then you know they get a walking margin rights for the patent. They own a little piece of it. And um, and so you know we're paying their salary, but now they're getting royalties from a vaccine they're supposed to regulate. They're supposed to be looking for problems in it. Well, they're not. You know, I mean, the incentive is to not find problems in it because you're going to make, you know, you're going to pay your mortgage with that vaccine. So, and or pay for your boat or whatever. Mm-hmm. And anyway, knowing what he just said, which you heard him just say, is that the last thing we want is a vaccine that actually makes you sicker. Wouldn't you think he would have done the, the, the animal studies before he started giving this to humans, but he didn't. He, well, he, it was unprecedented. They skipped the animal studies altogether. Well, all right, let's talk about the booster, because what we have right now is the latest booster. They did the animal studies. They took eight mice. <laughs> they injected <laughs> the booster in the eight mice and they said, oh, OK, we're good. They did the animal studies. We're, we're good, which is terrifying. I mean, we, I've seen lots of doctors online saying this is absurd you know, you've got some members of the FDA actually resigning, saying this this can't be. You can't stand on eight. Even Paul Offit has said this is absolutely outrageous. And um, yet they're doing it. And in fact, in some places, you're not considered fully vaccinated unless you're boosted. And the old booster doesn't count because that was against variants that are dead and gone. You, you have to get the one that was tested on just the eight mice. I mean, it's downright dangerous. Although, to me, the worst thing they're doing besides giving this to kids who have zero statistical risk from COVID. So why are we giving this to children? Because there's a big we know there's a one in twenty seven hundred risk just for myocarditis. Why would you ever give that to somebody when there's no risk from zero statistical risk to a healthy child from COVID? Zero. So why would you give it to somebody? And by the way. 70% 70% of them to 80%, maybe 90% already have antibodies. They've already mm-hmm. been exposed, so they don't need it anyway. Why would you subject them to that kind of risk? It is something is really wrong with public health. Why, you know, Paul Offit was sitting on that committee, and in his word, and he said he did not know how they could have recommended. He's on the committee that recommended it. He, he voted against it. But he said yeah, but the there was fix, two people who voted against it. He was all off it. The fix was in. Yeah. Oh, and the way they fix it, Megan, is the guys who sit on that, men and women who sit on that committee, are people who are what they call PIs. They're largely their principal investigators. So they work usually for universities, for big academic institutions, and their job is to do clinical trials for vaccine companies. And for and so they know that they're going to vote for this one. And when their vaccine gets in front of the committee, the committee will vote for them. It's disgusting. And, you know, there's all kinds of uh, studies that have been done that if you serve on that committee, you and you vote yes, 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 which is what they always do. Then you get you are you are riding a golden you know chariot for the rest of your life. You get grants, you get all these uh, junkets from the pharmaceutical companies. At uh, a a ticket on that committee is a free ride for the rest of your life. 
And so all of these people, you know, Tony Fauci says, oh, it wasn't me who approved the vaccine. It's an independent committee. But all of that, those people on that committee are working for him. They're getting funds from NIH, developed drugs that were made by NIH and then sold to a pharmaceutical company. And that PI is getting half his salary from NIH and the other half from the pharmaceutical company. And when they get that drug to market... Tony Fauci walks it through the FDA committee where he owns all the people. He populates those committees with his guys. They rubber stamp it. Then he brings it to the ASIP committee, the advisory committee of immunization practices at CDC. And they're all the same people. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Alex Berenson who was banned from Twitter for quite some time for questioning the vaccine's efficacies um, and questioning masking and questioning all the same things that you've been questioning. So he got, for a while, permanently booted off of Twitter. He got back on. He filed a lawsuit. But he has now revealed that Pfizer board member Scott Gottlieb was instrumental in getting that ban in place, that Gottlieb secretly pressed Twitter to censor Berenson in the days before Twitter actually suspended Berenson's account. And Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner who then finds himself with his cushy seat um, on the Pfizer board. He um, apparently, uh, okay, this is according to Berenson, on August 24th, 2021, Scott Gottlieb sent an urgent email about Berenson's reporting to a contact at Twitter, forwarding an article that Berenson had written about Anthony Fauci on Berenson's Substack, complaining, this is what's promoted on Twitter. This is why Tony needs a security detail. But the piece did not threaten Tony Fauci or harass him in any way. It just called him arrogant, said he was a skilled courtier and mocked his comment that attacking him was attacking science. So here you have the Pfizer board member running cover for Anthony Fauci. Uh, and of course, it works both ways. Gottlieb came on my program. And can I tell you, I pressed him hard on some of the claims he was making. And he became very defensive and it didn't wind up going very well. And when it was over, he said to my team something to the effect of, you know, I'm respected. I'm a respected authority. <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, but that doesn't give you a pass on tough questions. You're a respected authority, too. But you got tough questions the last time you were on. Most people come on and take it like men or women if they actually <laughs> know their stuff. But it reminded me. Of this exchange, here's just a bit of the interview I'm referring to, former FDA chair, Scott Gottlieb. But the masks are not effective and there aren't studies proving that they are. The CDC's own study, deal with that, 90,000 students in the Atlanta yeah, look, School District, my, prove my that they do not have any effect. Why isn't that valid? Why isn't the CDC relying on its own study to allow us to unmask our children? Yeah, my policy prescription would be that in the setting of a very contagious variant that we we don't know how hard or easy it's going to be to control in a school setting where the imperative is to keep kids in the classroom and also keep them safe. We should go into the school year adopting all the reasonable measures that we can no. take and peel them away as we masking see how has negative effects. Are. Masking has negative effects on children. That's been proven as well. This is not a harmless measure and it's not 
helping. So why wouldn't we be honest about the CDC's well, own information? Well, that's what we're going to agree to with that approach. They didn't have any mitigation in place in a lot of those school districts. And we saw the virus become epidemic in the schools. Now, it coursed its way through. What um, schools did it become outcomes. epidemic in? Amongst children in school spread? Among- that's not true. No, not it went. But that's just one example. I'm sure you could give us 10 more. The FDA, the people who are on it and the people who are so closely tied, they miraculously wind up at Big Pharma getting big paychecks right after they leave. This system is corrupt and it leads to disinformation. You want to talk disinformation, they're purveyors of it. Yeah, I mean, he came from the pharmaceutical industry. He was uh, President Trump appointed him to run. He's part of the, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to like inject myself into it, but President Trump asked me in, in January of 2016 to run a vaccine safety commission. And um, when and I agreed to do it and to, to study and to, to make sure the right studies were being done, to make sure the vaccines were actually each vaccine was actually working. The, you know, yeah. a placebo control study, the same studies that are required for every other medication and vaccines are exempt from that when it was announced that I was going to be running a vaccine safety commission and the purpose of the commission which would be to require those studies to be done, which they all say are being done, but they're not. Oh, when it was announced that I was being I was going to be put on a vaccine safety commission, there was panic throughout the industry and the regulatory, yeah. you know, uh, public of health regulatory agencies. And Pfizer made a million dollar contribution to uh, to Trump, and Trump then appointed two people who were handpicked by Pfizer, Alex Azar and Scott Gottlieb, to run the public health agency, and they killed the Vaccine Safety Commission. Wow. Uh, and Scott Gottlieb came out of the industry, and of course, but you know, the frustrating part, and I don't know exactly how it happened, you know, I don't know why, but they just stopped, as soon as those guys got in there, they stopped answering our phone calls or communicating with us. But uh, if you look at that clip, that clip was really, you know, it's kind of a template for how they handle this. This guy is the guy who ran through Operation Warp Speed. Wouldn't you think he'd be going and doing his homework on this vaccine and he could, and masking and all the other things that he was involved with and that he'd be able to field a simple question like the one that you asked him? And all he did was, you know, was tap dance. It, it reminded me of that movie, uh, Chicago, where Richard Gere is saying, you know, give them the old razzle dazzle. Mm-hmm. He was not answering any any of your question. He was just. It's true. It was. I mean, it's interesting to play it again. Again, it was just double. It was classic double talk and, you yeah. know, repeating the same thing and moving the goal and dodging and weaving. And, you know, but it was. And then at the end, to say to my question. staff, I, I am a respected <laughs> authority. It's like, um, that's not going to save you here. Right. It's like, OK, so, yeah, we've got his number. But let me stay for a moment on the censorship. You got censored. And by the way, we didn't even talk about Children's Health Defense Fund. They got your your organization got censored from Instagram and Facebook and booted off for raising these very questions. Now we talked about Berenson, Joseph Ladipo, the Surgeon General of Florida. So he just got suspended on Twitter. Then after public shaming, they restored him because he's frustrated too by the lack of honesty coming from the vaccine companies on 
the downsides, especially when it comes to young men. And he tweeted out today, we released an analysis of the COVID mRNA vaccines that the public needs to be aware of. This analysis showed an increased risk of cardiac related death among men 18 to 39. Florida will not be silent on the truth. And he linked to guidance stating that uh, they found an 84 percent increase in the relative incidence of cardiac related death among males in that age group uh, within 28 days following the mRNA vaccination. Then his critics came out and said, oh, that's not a real study. It's like some word document he just put together. And Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins, he he came out and said, you know what? (laughs) Public health officials have said you can't make a correlation between cardiac death and this vaccine without a formal study. And they've chosen never to do one. And uh, he had no problem with the way that Lottabo did it, said he Florida said, we'll do it ourselves. He said they used a very elegant study design. Let's look at all the heart attacks six months after COVID vaccination. Ask ourselves, did they occur at an equal distribution over those six months or were they clustered in the month after the vaccine? And they found that they were clustered in the immediate four weeks after the vaccination. But you see it here, too, over and over. The establishment works together to shame, well, to silence and to shame. To shame the shaming's part of it. Critics who come out with information that might reflect negatively on the vaccine, instead of saying, holy God, 16 and 18 and 20 year olds are dying as a result of myocarditis caused by the vaccine. How, shouldn't we stop that? It's like our country seems to be the only one that isn't willing to reevaluate, Bobby. Right? Like we talked about the Scandinavian countries. Why are they so open minded? And we aren't. Yeah, I and you know I think Joe Latipo, who's the Surgeon General of Florida, is a real problem for Democrats because he's very courageous um, and he's very very credible and he's you know he's a he's a, a black American with a really you know a rags to riches story that's extraordinary. He's one of these guys who's like a hundred and eighty IQ, really smart. Amazing He's pedigree, ultra, Harvard. ultra liberal, you know, UCLA um, uh, professor, graduate, you know, just extraordinary credentials. And DeSantis tapped him to come to Florida and he didn't have any. I've I've talked to him many times before. He didn't have any kind of um, free, uh, you know, um, opinions or he, he didn't come with an agenda. He's not, you know, a Trumper or anything like that. He's just looking at the, he's just a guy who's looking at the science and then saying, okay, my job is to protect children. This is how I'm going to do it. And, you know, he's getting, he's getting burned at the stake for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll say another thing because you had, you and I had an, uh, you know, an earlier, um, kind of conversation or repartee about, um, whether or not the the obfuscation of data, which is such a strong feature of the uh, governmental management of the COVID crisis, is deliberate or not. And yeah, um, one of the things, you know, one of the real problems is that they don't have a good vaccine. First of all, you don't have any pre-licensing studies and you couldn't have good pre-licensing studies with these vaccines because they were rushed to market after you know, two months, nothing like this has ever happened before. Mm. And after two months clinical trial, two months of clinical data, they were rushed to to emergency use authorization. 
Um, but what they said is we're going to really look at them when they get up market. And if they start injuring people, we're going to, um, you know, we'll pull them. Well, the problem is that implies that you have a surveillance system that actually functions. And they don't. They have a surveillance system that was built to fail. And the reason I can say that is because it's called the VAR system. It's called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And the way it works is if a doctor gives you a vaccine and you get injured, the doctor then, or you, you you'll never know to do this. So you're not, individuals almost never call in. But the doctor's supposed to report all vaccine injuries. There's a couple of problems. One is the doctor is told myocarditis is not a vaccine injury. Therefore, if somebody reports myocarditis or death or seizures or cancer, accelerated cancers that we're now seeing, many doctors uh, believe that are associated with these vaccines. We just saw an or any of these other injuries, um, you're unlikely to report them because you're being it. And you can get punished for reporting them. You know, there are these institutional and cultural punishments that disincentivize people from reporting them. Not only that, if you're the doctor and you have a patient who comes in and you're saying, I'm going to save your life, I'm going to give you this vaccine. It's natural human impulse if you if that person does get injured to say, well, it wasn't the thing I did. It wasn't the intervention I did. It was something else. This is natural. This is normal. Oh, we've known this for many years. I've been a critic of the VAERS system for many years. So, but many, many people criticize the system. In fact, um, uh, David Kessler, who was the Surgeon General, uh, the system just is broken. It doesn't work. And it collects only a tiny fraction of vaccine injuries. We, we need to redo it. When 2010, CDC hired Harvard University School of Public Health professors they spent a lot of money and they did a three-year study on the system. And they looked at, um, at, at uh, they, they looked at intensively a, uh, an HMO called Harvard Pilgrim. And they studied vaccine injuries in that. And then they studied what the VAERS system was actually collecting. Mm -hmm. And what they concluded is that VAERS collects fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries, fewer. Wow. That means that more than 99% of vaccine injuries are escaping. And what they, what the company was in this study, people can look it up. It's 2010. I think it was published in pediatrics, but it's called the lead author is Lazarus. So anybody can look this up. The Lazarus study was designed to create an automated counting system. So the way that works is you take an HMO, the HMO has everybody's vaccine records, and then they have their medical claims. So if you get a vaccination and you come in and claim, you know, I got diabetes, you're now getting insulin for diabetes six years later, eight years later, or you have food allergies, or you have autoimmune disease, they, this system, this AI system will do a cluster analysis, which is very, very accurate, and they will correlate the particular vaccine with particular injuries, which which cluster around that vaccine. And it, it turns out with that system, you can get a 95, 98%, um, you know, of, of vaccine injuries are captured. So they built that system and they said it works like a charm and we're showing that it works. 
and we're showing the other systems completely broken and this is easy to implement. And what did CDC do? They ran away from it. They put it on a shelf and they said, we don't want to see it. They also said that there are serious injuries in one out of every 32 vaccines given. And when CDC saw that number, they said, we do not want to know about this. And they shelved that system. So the reason that they don't have a good VAR system today is deliberate. They did not want a system that would actually capture vaccine injuries. And when you see these people like, you know, uh, uh, like Offit and others saying, well, vaccine, you know, the VAR system is not a good judge of vaccine injury. The question is, number one, why didn't you implement the system that you got? Number two, this is your system. You've had it for 36 years. You've known for 36 years that it doesn't work. Why didn't you fix it before? You know, it's easy to fix. Why didn't you fix it before well, you gave and, these and the fact, know, untested vaccines? to? And the fact that, that now the vaccines are are mandatory is what makes it especially galling. So we intentionally yeah. don't have a system that captures the injuries. And they're, at the same time, they're requiring us to get them in order to go into a restaurant or keep our job or enter a a, a senior citizen's home. My, my mother-in-law had to go briefly into an elder care facility because she got very ill and she was time to leave the hospital and she couldn't get in unless she got the vaccine. She she didn't want the vaccine. I understand people say it's crazy. She's 86. She should get the vaccine. She didn't want to get it. She did wind up having to get it to get in. Right. So it's like they make you get it. And at the same time, these these officials, you know, like the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you just mentioned the, the, the magazine Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics is mandating the vaccine. They, they're, they're recommending the vaccine for six months and older. They want you to inject your six month old baby. Um, they're mandating masking to this day. Did you know that for children? Not mandating, but recommending still recommending masking children as of this day, including the little ones. Um, I think it's Vinay Prasad. Dr. Vinay Prasad has been outspoken, uh, outspoken on COVID. He's a fair broker. He's recommending disbanding the American Academy of Pediatrics. He says, look, some pediatricians are good. This group is not good. They're, they're the ones who uh, they reverse themselves on um, schools reopening just because Trump said he wanted them to reopen. Their positioning on masking seems to be politically driven, too. Like, but yet this gets thrown in your face when you say, ah. Oh, I don't want the mask on my kid. I don't want to vaccinate my six month old. And they say, oh, but the American Academy of Pediatrics is supposed to be some godly organization that you have to defer to as, you know, a layperson without an MD. Uh, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics gets um, most of its funding through the uh, journal Pediatrics and about um, 85 percent of that funding comes from pharmaceutical companies. And then they get a lot of other grants coming from pharma. So pharma owns the American Academy of Pediatrics. When you, you know, these aren't medical opinions. These are um, the opinions that you get from AAP have nothing to do with public health. They have to do with pharmaceutical profits and promoting the pharmaceutical paradigm. Um, and, you know, that's been true. That's not recent. That's been true for many, many, many years. Wow. I mean, that is... That's stunning if you think about it. I don't know. I just feel like parents have trust in these organizations. They don't spend the time looking that stuff up. And then again, but when someone like you says, well, is, let me help you out, they, they silence yeah, you. I mean, 
The bad thing is it's not the parents, but the pediatricians trust the organization and the pediatricians trust CDC and the pediatricians are trusting FDA. And they don't understand that those agencies are captive agencies, that their public health um, function has been subsumed by their mercantile relationships with the pharmaceutical industry. And what they're getting is not what the pediatricians are getting is pharmaceutical propaganda. It's not science. Why are they not saying what the heck is happening with these children? And, you know, but, but it doesn't seem like those questions. It seems like the medical schools are programming those questions out of you. So you're just Absolutely. not allowed to ask fundamental questions. What is happening to children's health in this country? Why are these kids so, why is this the sickest generation in history with all of these you know diseases that were just simply did not they were so rare in my generation that we didn't even know about them and uh and now you know they're all every classroom has epipens in it yeah why is nobody what is causing that why is nobody asking that question you know something's wrong if you i've never seen let me jump in let me me jump in let me jump in because i want to ask you something personal about this um if you do ask questions, because now we're we're on sort of broad vaccine vaccination questions, not just necessarily COVID. And by the um, way, this isn't just a vaccine question. Here, yeah, no, no, no. Children are swimming around in a toxic soup. You know, this is as we outlined in our first interview. This is the battle you've been waging for your entire adult life, trying to yeah. clean up the toxic stew. Stew, and um, really, th- there was no cause for making you such a pariah. Um, but for the questions you asked about childhood vaccinations and whether those made sense, which we got into in our last interview at length. But I wanted to ask you, if I if you don't mind, a personal question. Um, we talked about last time the blowback on your wife, Cheryl Hines, and her Hollywood career and just just being your wife. <laughs> That's all Cheryl has done. She hasn't weighed in on vaccines. But your family, obviously, you're for a long line of Democrats and um, your family before the pandemic, this is 2019, wrote an open letter going after you for your your questions about vaccines. This is from your sister, your brother, and your niece, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, Joseph Kennedy, and uh, Meve Kennedy McKeon. And they wrote in part um, that they were condemning the growing fear and mistrust of vaccines, quote, amplified by internet doomsayers, Robert F. Kennedy, um, and going on from there and and saying that you were part of this campaign to attack the institutions committed to reducing the tragedy of preventable infectious diseases. He has helped to spread dangerous misinformation over social media and is complicit in sowing distrust of the science behind vaccines. We love Bobby. However, on vaccines, he's wrong. What did you make of that? Your own family writing that publicly about you? Well, if you're asking, did I like it? No, I didn't like it. But, you know, listen, I this the positions I've taken on this issue have caused me a lot of friendships, not, you know, um, not just with those family members, but um, others, my political relationships, um, jobs, income, et cetera. But and what I keep saying to people is, OK, listen, I could be wrong. but show me that some science show me you know show me something that i show me a statement that i got wrong actually wrong 
and show me where the science that I believe is kind of the best description of how these things are working. Um, show me where those studies are wrong, but it's hard for people to do. And I understand that. I'm, you know, compassionate about it because it took me a long time to, to walk into this woods. You know, it was something I resisted. I had all of the, you know, I was, I, I don't know if we talked about this the last time that you and I talked, but I was running Waterkeeper Alliance, which is a group that I love and that I co-founded. And it was, it's the biggest water protection group in the world. And it's 350 individual waterkeepers, each with a patrol boat and um, that patrols local waterways and sues polluters. Oh, we had about 40 lawsuits that I was involved in against um, plants that uh, mainly cement kilns and coal burning power plants that were discharging mercury. The mercury was getting into the fish. In 2003, FDA published a report that said that 100% of freshwater fish in North America had dangerous levels of mercury in their flesh. And that just struck me as like a, we were living in a science fiction nightmare where my children and the children of, you know, every other American would no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth, which is to go fishing with their father and mother in the local fishing hole and then come home and safely eat the fish. We were suing them. There are other people suing coal plants, but Waterkeeper was suing on mercury. So I knew a lot about mercury. And I started giving speeches around the country and these women started hounding me. They were, wherever I spoke, there, these women would come in early and they'd occupy the front seat. It was a different group every time, mostly. And then afterwards, they would come up, politely confront me and say, you know, and respectfully, but in a vaguely scolding way, say, if you're really interested in mercury exposures to children, you need to look at vaccines because it dwarfs what they're getting from fish. And I didn't want to do it. And it wasn't an area that I wanted to get involved in. Did you I know it would be happening? And one of these women showed up at my house in Hyannisport. I, did I already tell you this story? Uh, this yeah, I heard this the first Sarah time. Bridges. She's a psychologist. Yeah. And she had an 18-inch thick pile of scientific studies. And she said, I'm not leaving here till you read them. And I read the abstracts. And I saw what, you know, that there's this huge delta between what the public health authorities were saying and what about vaccine safety and what the actual science was saying. And I called people like Francis Collins, who I knew, and all these other people. And I began to slowly realize that the public health authorities either were not conversing with the science or that they were lying. But it was a long, gradual journey for me that took a lot of years um, to kind of get a more expansive view about what's happening. So I know that I can't expect, you know, people like my family members who do not have the time to make this kind of exploration to believe me and they see me and they say, oh, he must be crazy. Why is he crazy? Because all the other stuff he says makes sense. But, he, you know, everybody we know, we trust, we believe in all of the, our doctors who, you know, Bobby didn't go to medical school. Yeah, we have doctors who we trust. Maeve, you know, who sadly uh, was died during the pandemic with her ten-year-old boy in a drowning incident. Who wrote that article was a, you know, was a um, 
uh, public health, a rising star in public health. She worked for uh, Francis Collins' agency for NIH. She had her own center there, and she was horrified by what I was doing. She believed it, and um, and so I don't like I don't hold this against people that they don't believe me. I what but what I say is let's have a discussion. Let's have a congenial, respectful debate about this, and let's try to keep it on the science and away from the ad hominem attacks. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't. When people attack me, other people's opinions of me, uh, Megan, I feel like they're not my business. I know what I have to do. I know what I believe the truth to be, but I also know. If somebody shows me I'm wrong, I am not hard-headed. I'm not dug in about, you know, my worldview. I, I'm changing my worldview all the time based upon new factual inputs. And all I need is somebody to show me where I'm wrong. And then I, and I will be grateful to them because I can walk away from this and go back to Waterkeeper, which is what I want to be doing. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. My producers dug up the following quote from you in 2016 to Vanity Fair, and I I really love to ask you about it. You wrote, I you said, I think Donald Trump is dangerous and deceptive and he's a demagogue. I don't think it should should surprise anybody to see how well he's doing, because that kind of demagoguery is formulaic and it's easy. There are buttons that you can push of bigotry and xenophobia and prejudice and anger and self-interest and nationalism, false patriotism. So has your opinion of him changed since then? No, I wouldn't say so. I think that's true. What I said then is true. I think the easiest thing for a politician to do is to um, is to appeal to that kind of darker side of people. And I think, um, you know, he was he's very, very good at at understanding where those uh those kind of buttons are i think what my dad tried to do uh was different and was much harder which is to try to um to try to uh tell to tell get people to believe that they're part of a community to find kind of the the hero in everybody and and um and a willingness to take risks and make sacrifices for the good of the whole. And you know, when my dad died, one of my most poignant memories of him is when we waked him up in St. Patrick's and then brought him down on the train. And there was a, a couple million people on the tracks, but they were every color, you know, there were black people in Newark. We we took them from New York down to uh, Penn Station in Washington or to a uh, Union Station in Washington, DC. And um there were black these crowds of blacks singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic and in the train station, just jamming the train stations in Newark and um Philadelphia and Baltimore. 
there were white veterans on the tracks the whole way down. There were, I remember a group of about six or nine nuns standing in the back of the pickup truck. There were Boy Scouts. There were uh, little leaguers who were standing, saluting as we went by. Um, there was every, it was a cross-section of the, of the American experience. And all these very different people who had, um, who, you know, was supporting my dad. Now, four years later, I remember when I was at college and studying politics and, and I read these demographic data that showed that four years after that in 1972, so my dad died in 68. In 72, almost all of the white people who had been lining that track were voting not for George McGovern, who was very much aligned with my dad, but for George Wallace who was antithetical to everything my father believed in. Wow. So the people who believed in my, who were, you know, who were willing to support my father's, to put their prejudices, the nationalism, the patriot, false patriotism, and all this aside and say, we have, we're willing to buy into this idealistic view of America. Four years later, they were done with it. And they were like, I got to protect myself and I'm going to protect myself against other races and other colors and people don't look like me. And, you know, all the people who seem like they're out to get me. And, you know, the people in this country today, and this is what I think the liberals have lost track of, they, the middle class is being systematically dismantled. People are getting screwed and they're angry. And the liberal party today is not offering them anything. It's not telling them, you know, it's not validating their anger and their rage. It's um, it's telling them they're deplorable. And it's telling them, you know, that they're that they should have other concerns. And uh, it's uh, and I think that, you know, Trump is able. Trump doesn't tell them that Trump validates those concerns. And I think that that makes him and he's fearless. And he's, uh, you know, he has all these kind of manly qualities that are, you know, the what the the uh, the heroic figure on the white horse who's going to come in and and save you. Do I think he's actually going to do that? No, I watched him collapse and fold in front of Anthony Fauci. But I think, you know, and I don't think he has the patience to understand policy or to delve into it. And I don't, you know, I think uh, it, his approach is not about trying to solve the problems, but, you know, to break things. And a mm -hmm. lot of people want things broken right now. So, you know, mm -hmm. I under, I completely, utterly understand his appeal. And I don't think those Americans who support him are, um, you know, are bad people. I think they're the core of our country. And I think if we don't figure out a way to get Americans to start talking to each other about the values that we share, um, that our country is headed for some, for a very, very dark place. And that, you know, I think people who call themselves liberals have to remember what the, you know, what liberalism stood for. And that, yeah, you know, and we were the party of the unions. We weren't the party that were defunding the police and that were, you know, telling people that inflation doesn't exist when, you know, they're getting crucified by it. And that, you know, are going to endless wars at, you know, at a time when, um, you know, gasoline prices are, I paid, just paid seven bucks a gallon for gasoline. Uh, you know, we're paying for the Ukraine war with that.
Uh, let me ask. Let me ask you something about that. I, I two questions for you on um, politics and war. Um, Herschel Walker's been in the news, and uh, his personal life is what's been in the news. And if if the reports are true, and he denies many of them, he hasn't been a particularly great dad uh, to the children that he's had, and his various girlfriends have had, and he hasn't been a particularly good romantic partner. And there's a debate in the Republican Party about should it matter because they really want control of the Senate, you know, and they would like to overlook those foibles. And of course, Raphael Warnock has some of his own, his opponent. But I wonder, as a Kennedy, you know, you're kind of a good person to ask since we now know JFK had you know a long line of reported affairs when he was married. And, you know, had we had we zeroed in on those back then in the country the way it was back then, that that might have made a difference politically, obviously. Ted Kennedy, Chappaquiddick, the whole other story. So what's your opinion? You know, should it should it matter if Herschel Walker has other kids who he fathered but didn't take care of? If he had if he got a woman pregnant and paid for an abortion for her and then wound up being staunchly anti-abortion and so on, should it matter or should it just matter how the person's going to vote? Yeah, but I, I'm not sure. You know, I think people. Well, I, I really can't answer about whether it should matter or not. I mean, I think there's, you know, um, there's personal integrity and there's public integrity and that they're two different things. And, you know, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because I'm not believing that he you know, had an exemplary personal life. Um, and um, but willing to overlook that because he was bringing some other things to the table. So I'm not going to say whether whether you know, people should be concerned about that, about people's private lives. I mean, you know, I just read a uh, Chernoff's uh, biography of, of Hamilton and Hamilton had, you know, a lot of those issues. Hamilton was probably the most, you know, after Washington, the most important leader. He gave us the constitution. He gave us the um, you know, the federal government, our economic system in this country, and yet he had a lot of personal foibles. And so, you know, but he was a great leader. And I think there's been other people who have personally, I mean, listen, humanity is so badly flawed. We all are. We all need help. And um, I think the question is about whether um, that people ask is, you know, whether people are striving to be good people and whether they're striving to be good leaders, you know, who genuinely care about people and want to solve problems. Mm. And they, the package that goes into how we assess people is multifarious. It's, there's, you know, there's a lot of different things people have to consider. And uh, so I would not, I do not, I don't feel like I am um, in a, uh, you know, can offer anybody advice on that issue. I had a friend who never wanted to part with her $10 bills because she really felt that Alexander Hamilton was the best looking person on the money. She said, I can I can tell he has beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> it always cracked me up. He was um, very, I, very attractive to women. And he was, he was uh, I mean, you fall in love with him when you read Chernoff's book. I mean, people yeah. already know that because... You know, they made the play Hamilton out of that book, but that right. the, the book is really, uh, 
you know, it's, it's riveting. And I, uh, I had not read it before. I read Chernoff's biography of Washington years ago, which I love, but it's, you know, he writes like poetry and he brings this guy to life and the, the his life was so extraordinary. You know, he's, it's, he, uh, he it's, it's literally on our bookshelf right now. My husband read it and I passed by it literally this morning and you thought, know what oh, I, I should pick that up. Is I, I have become addicted to, uh, to Audible. The books on oh, tape. I love Audible. Yes. So whenever I'm in the car, and it's, I've been able to read probably, I probably read 20 books a year now um, on Audible, which is one after the other, and um, and it's it's really been able to increase my reading time because anytime I'm in the car for 10 minutes, I turn it on and I love it. It's so nice, so much better than just scrolling through mindless social media when you're waiting to go into the doctor's office or riding through traffic. I agree with you. Uh, okay, on a heavier note, uh, sorry to go back to a heavier note, but I have to ask you, we've been talking a lot about Ukraine and we heard our president say we we haven't been facing this kind of Armageddon since 1962 when your dad went to Cuba and helped resolve uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was the last time that we were facing possible nuclear war. I mean, obviously, we had the Cold War with the Russians. But according to this president, that was the closest we've come until right now. So what do you make of what's happening right now in Ukraine? Because I know your dad and your uncle, President Kennedy, rejected the advice of you know the military industrial complex, as you described to me the last time that really wanted war, that were pushing, trying to push the country into war. And it has very much the feel like it's happening again. And I do wonder whether we have a president in the White House right now who's got the temerity to push back as JFK and your dad RFK did. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I have, um, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about Ukraine um, and my, you know, my inclination is for my, the, the thing I want with Ukraine is I want a debate, you know, and I've had people on my podcast on both sides. I've had a CIA people who are very strongly in favor of it. And then I've had a number of people who are, um, you know, are really articulate and eloquent about uh, why we shouldn't be there. And it's a complicated issue, as all are. You know, and I, I have to say, within my own family, I, you know, we are, we argue and debate about this at the dinner table. And um, but my son Connor, as uh, who's twenty six years old, has been in the Ukraine. Uh, he joined the Foreign Legion. He went over there. He felt like. Because he had spent so much time arguing in favor of, you know, he, he does not like Putin. He does not like bullies. He, he feels Putin is a gangster and a bully. And the invasion um, is uh, was just wrong. And he argued very strongly about it. And when we went in, he felt that he shouldn't be arguing about it unless he was willing to, uh, in, in favor of war, unless he was willing have skin in the game and take his own risks. Um, and so he went to the Ukrainian embassy and he signed up for the Foreign Legion and he's been fighting over in the Ukraine for the last couple of months. Oh, wow. Um, he's part of a, a, he was part of a special forces unit um, that 
And he so he didn't have any military experience, and he kind of talked his way into the unit. And he's a big, strong guy. He's six foot five, and you know, is an athlete, and could shoot a gun. Um, but they made him a drone pilot for the you know forward unit, and then they uh, promoted him to a machine gunner, which is a tripod mounted um, you know machine gun. And he's been over there uh, for a couple of months. Um, he's been in firefights, um, mainly nighttime, and a lot of artillery fights with the Russians. I, he didn't tell any of us where he was going. I saw the, I saw his uh, Cheryl and I. He, he went. He would. He was straight with us, and he said, "Dad, I said, yeah, I knew he, he had a job for a law firm." He's third year law student in, in uh, Georgetown. He had a job for a law firm, a really good law firm, Bob Hedlin here in, um, in Los Angeles. And I was looking forward to him living with me for the summer. And he said, I said, when do you start the law firm? And he said, I'm not going. And um, I want to talk to you. I don't want you to ask me what I'm doing. <laughs> I was like, um, and he said, I will explain it to you at some point, but I do not want you to ask me now. And if you can just respect that, it would mean a lot to me. So I did. Mm. But Cheryl and I were worried about him because we thought maybe he's doing something dangerous. And we um, we were looking at his credit card bills. And the last one we saw was in Poland. And then there was one in the Ukraine. And then they just stopped. And he didn't tell anybody where he was going um, or what he was doing. And none of the people in his his squadron, I think he had 22 people, men that he was, you know, fighting with. And he became very, very close to them. And he um, he didn't tell any of them who he was. And um, so anyway... He uh, he came back a couple days ago and I had, you know, I flew out to the East Coast to meet him and I heard about what he had done. And I'm very glad I didn't know what he was up to. So you just found uh, out. The, the point is that, that, you know, there's differences in my family. And but we talk to each other about it and I send him articles, you know, at, where I disagree. And he, here's the bottom line for me. I think we have a military industrial complex in this country that feeds on continual war, that they want continual state of war. I believe that um, you know, that is very, very difficult. And this is what Madison and Adams said. Adams specifically said, um, America can support democracy abroad, but we will not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And why is that? Because an imperialism abroad is inconsistent with democracy at home. It will turn America into a national security state, into an authoritarian state, if we continue to be, you know, our, our biggest industry be the military. Ida Eisenhower on January 17th in 1960, 61, just before he left office and handed it over to my uncle, made the best, probably the most important speech in American history warning America against the rise of the military-industrial complex, complex and talking about how it would subdue and destroy American democracy. And, you know, listen, we go out from war to war to war, and each war is uh, preceded by a propaganda barrage. 
we and and then you know um and the press all jumps on and here the same thing happened during the iraq war which was the worst foreign policy choice that we ever made until covid 19 came along in american history and the new york times had to apologize for its reporting with judith miller you know and all of the neocon and cia people who were tricked us into that war president george bush and the worst mistake of his presidency was believing George Tenet, the head of the CIA, when he said the weapons of mass destruction is a slam dunk. He said he was tricked by the CIA into that war. So if you look what's happened in the Ukraine, you know, there was a CIA-sponsored coup in 2014. And mm-hmm. the RAND Corporation, now we know, had, you know, published this um, this. Uh, blueprint that says, you know, we should, our strategy, our our uh, our global strategy should be to provoke um, Putin into extending, into overextending himself and, um, you know, and then confronting him in one of these old countries, these former Soviet states. And, um, you know, Putin is a gangster. He's homicidal. He's a thug. He's uh, one of the worst people alive today. Um, but um, you know, we need to we need to have a real debate about how this war, about our part in the whole thing, and what right. you know, the part the CIA played in it, and what part you know, and what part the the extension of NATO when when Gorbachev came went to President Bush and said to President Bush, I'm going to dismantle the Soviet Union, but I, um, but I want your assurance. I want America's promise to me that you will not move NATO into the former Soviet satellite states as, we, as they come off. We don't want to be surrounded by a hostile NATO. And, um, and Bush promised him we will not, on behalf of the American people, we will not move NATO one inch to the east. And since then, we've moved NATO into, I think, 13 countries that we promised we wouldn't do. We've installed missile systems in each one of them that can be converted literally overnight into nuclear missile systems now. And then you have a government in the Ukraine that has killed between 13,000 and 14,000 ethnic Russians in the eastern part of the, the, the government that we install, helped install. And you had the neocon, you know, Victoria Newland selecting the cabinet in 2014. But we help install this government. And then, you know, then they go to, they start treating the, their ethnic Russians like redheaded stepchildren. And, uh, and, and they, then now we're now in a war, they, they got in a war with them where they're, you know, they're killing 13 to 14,000 ethnic Russians in the eastern uh, part of, of Ukraine. Now, in 1962, when the Russians moved nuclear missiles into Cuba, we had on the XCOM committee, we had, uh, I think, 11 of the people on that committee who said we should bomb them, even nuclear bomb them. And, and my uncle Jack said, what if that means nuclear war with the Russians? And they said, well, they won't do it. We got to do it. We got to invade Cuba. So. You know, they were 90 miles from us and they were, I think, 1,400 miles from Washington. But we have we have missile emplacements now that are a few miles from the Russian border. So um, and if 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 the Russians moved nuclear missiles into Mexico, 
or missile systems of any kind. And they killed 14,000 American expatriates in Guadalajara and Baja. We would be in there overnight. So, you know, it's, and I'm not, listen, what my uncle said about foreign policy is you always put yourself in the other guy's shoes. And you always figure out, right out, give them a way out. And nobody's talking about uh, any way to settle this. You know, they what they're talking about and what Biden's talking about is regime change. And that's what the CIA wants, regime mm-hmm. change in Russia. And that's insane. It's going to get us the same place as regime change did in Iraq, where the situation just gets worse. So I don't think, you know, I listen, those are my arguments today, Megan. As of now, I'm not, it's not something I'm wedded to. These are really kind of anxieties I have about this war. And, and you know, the, the uh, reasons this war troubles me, but I listen to other people. And, you know, I can, um, and I had a CIA guy on my podcast who made a really strong case, uh, you know, for intervention. My son who knows all the things that I am troubled at about this, and he's troubled by them too. He's not like naive. He understands, you know, uh, the Ukrainian government is as corrupt as the Russian government, and they're intolerant of, of civil rights. And then you have all these, you know, really uh, neo-Nazis and the Azov Battalion, et cetera, and Connor's aware of that. Connor saw none of those Nazis when he was over there. The people he worked with, and when I hear him talk about it and the feelings that he has about the Ukrainian people, it, you know, makes you want to cry. And he's very articulate and very convincing. About it. So I don't, I'm I'm lucky that I don't have to now make it to, I'm not in a position to make a decision about where you go next, because I think it's really complicated, all wars are. But I think we ought to be talking about these things. And the, the concerns that I raise, people, we need to have an open debate about them. Because, you know, when you're taking $50 billion that could be over here paying off student debt and restoring our middle class. But, you know, we're paying for that. And I can tell you, people are paying for it at the pump. Yeah, you know, we're time. paying six or seven bucks a gallon, and that is the cost of the Ukrainian war that you, as an individual, are paying every single day. I, I have to tell you, I would absolutely love to be a fly on the wall at your house on Thanksgiving between the sister <laughs> on the vaccines and the son on Ukraine. Can I just rewind for one second? To did you just find out about Connor serving in Ukraine? When you were there to greet him on his return to the United, like, can you take just take me through the moment well, you found out? Me, he called me. He has a girl, a girlfriend in Brazil, and he flew from the Ukraine to see her. I mean, I'm not. I, I, that's you know. He, you were and, first on the list. No, but as soon as he landed in Sao Paulo, he called me. And were he said, you stunned? You know, here's what I was doing, and I said, "Well, thank God you're home." And I said, "I'm proud of you," because he believed in it. And I'm very proud that he argued very strongly for it. And most people yeah. argue for war are chicken hawks. You know, they're not willing. They want somebody else to fight it. But he didn't yeah. want to be that person. He wanted to be the person. He said, if I argued for it, I need to be able to go there and risk my skin. You know, I feel and, like this uh, is so he's a Kennedy. But he did that. I'm very, very proud. I'm glad he didn't tell me beforehand because I yeah. would have been worried sick. 
I would have been thinking maybe CIA, you know, maybe he's in the CIA and he can't tell me what he's doing. But I don't think I would have been thinking he's off in Ukraine fighting. But it, uh, it's taking me back to our first interview where you talked about how you were raised. You had to read the articles in the newspaper. You had to outline them. You had to be ready to defend the points for and against. And I'm sure your kids have that, too. So it's part of the Kennedy lore and it's part of the inspiration. Even I've been trying to do that kind of thing with my own kids since our last chat um, with less success than I would like. But um, maybe that's a good thing. So I don't want them going, taking up arms in foreign countries. It's harder to do it with the kids today because, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because your parents used to be able to whack you if you didn't do the right thing. You can't really (laughs) do that anymore or something. I don't know what it is, but the kids today are harder to. All right. All I can say is that Cheryl is a saint because you're like me. You bring drama wherever you go. So Doug, my husband's a saint. Cheryl is a saint. You and I are troublemakers, and that's not all bad. What a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. Ah, what a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating man. Uh, I want to tell you that tomorrow the guys from the Ruthless podcast will be back with us and we booked them uh, on this day for a reason. They are going to be great and they're going to talk about the much anticipated debate happening tonight, Tuesday night, between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. And before we sign off, I want to tell you something exciting. I mentioned it yesterday, but I'm not the only podcaster in my family now. My husband, Doug Brunt just dropped a new podcast series today. He released the first two. He's got many in the pike called Dedicated with Doug Brunt. If you just search Doug Brunt in any of your podcasts, you know, in the search bar, it'll come up Dedicated with Doug Brunt. He's a writer and he interviews great writers on how they became writers, uh, what the pitfalls were, what their process is, the behind the scenes secrets about their greatest works. Um, And so you'll hear just a couple of those, including a great, great one with Lee Child uh, if you go over there today. So if you like me, I think you'll like Doug. (laughs) You may may learn a bit, a little bit about why I married him. (laughs) Check it out. Here's just a little bit of the trailer to reel you in. This is Dedicated with Doug Brunt. This show is going to bring you the world's best writers in a way you never get to hear them. Guard down, ready to talk. I'm a writer who loves to read, and I realized there's no place to go to hear directly from the writers I admire most. Movie fans have Inside the Actor's Studio. Music lovers have VH1's Behind the Music. Book fans? So I created this show. If you love great books and want to spend time with the authors, this show is for you. We'll talk about their work, their process, their personal lives, and in some cases, the box office hit movies that came out of it. It'll be the writers, me, and a fair amount of liquor. We're dedicated. I hope you'll check it out. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.